Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your Word, for Your love and Your grace, for this place that we can come to assemble ourselves together as royal family and to feed on Your Word so that we can learn how to execute Your plan for us in this wicked, wicked world and that we can have a personal sense of eternal destiny, that we don't have to be controlled by our circumstances. We can rise above that. We can live like royalty because of the grace and the doctrine that You have provided for us. So we pray that You will help us to focus, to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take one last passing look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. One reason this is an important verse, or these three verses, because people that would take you there to try to allege that you can lose your salvation or that you may have to doubt your salvation. Actually, when you look at it, you dissect it, you slow down and really see what it's saying, it does just the opposite. This is a great verse for eternal security, or I could say for assurance. We can be assured that we are God's children, that we have our ticket to heaven guaranteed. It's all because of verse 13. But we'll start at the beginning again just quickly. It is a trustworthy statement, and again, I hope that you write this in your Bibles because this is literally translated from the Greek, pistuoton logos, which means faithful is the word. And this can refer to either the written word or the living word because both are faithful. For if we died with Him, and we did positionally, you go to Romans chapter 6, it will tell you all about dying with Christ. We will also live with Him. It's a first class conditional clause. We died, we live. Died with Him, Christ lives now. We already have eternal life. There's something about eternal life. You know, we have eternal life right now, but we don't really experience it, so to speak. There is an experiential eternal life that we've gone over, but as far as the fact that when God imputed His eternal life to us, we didn't feel it. I don't know what it felt like, but I know that I went to the Bible later on and I saw that when I believed in Jesus Christ, He imputed His own righteousness to, to me. He imputed eternal life to me, and I have it. But it's not going to be until Jesus Christ returns or until we check out of this world that we're going to really... I guess you could say experience it to its fullest. So we have it. We have eternal life. And we will also live with Him. Verse 12. If we endure, present active indicative, and they were. I wouldn't say they all were enduring. I think some were and some weren't. I think all believers may. Um, well, I, I can't say all believers endure even a little bit. Some, I think, maybe don't endure at all, but certainly uh, maybe most believers 
endure some of the time, and some of the time they don't endure. Sometimes they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they're not. But in this case, he says, if we endure, and they were, we will also reign with Him. Future active indicative. It's a certainty. What is he talking about here? What is this verse about? That tells us right there. It's talking about rewards. This, this shouldn't be rocket science. If we endure, if we endure in taking in the Word, and we think about the Word, we apply the Word, and we do that over the long haul, if we don't flake off, then we can look forward to phenomenal eternal blessings as well as blessings in time. So it's about reward. Then we have, if we deny Him, future middle indicative, if that's, if that's the, and that's, <coughs> in a, again, a first-class conditional clause, and we all deny Him from time to time, He will also deny us. Now, that's the part that people like to quote. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. And we went through all the different ways that a person can deny. One way of denying is just saying you don't want to be associated with a person or that you don't know them or you don't uh, want to associate with them anymore. But you can also just deny mandates. If you deny what someone tells you, that's another form of denial. Whatever the meaning of that word deny is, if you're a believer and you're denying in any of those categories, then you're going to be denied rewards, and that is the context. Verse 13, if we are faithless, present active indicative, indicative and that means it's a first-class first conditional cause, and we are, they were, we all are faithless sometimes. Here's the great promise, though. He remains faithful. Present, active, indicative. For he cannot deny, that's an infinitive, cannot deny himself. In other words, he can't go back on the promises of eternal life through faith in him. They're irrevocable. Once he imputes that to you, there's no taking it back. So even if you're the most reprehensible, most odious believer there ever was, then you still have eternal life or you still have His own righteousness. Those promises are good regardless of who and what you are. The reason they are good is because of who and what He is. So we, have, we go right back to the, to the faithful is the Word at the beginning and at the end it says He remains faithful. The Lord remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Great information on a verse that really is a eternal security verse. Here's the four ways, by the way. I didn't give you this a while back. I just gave it to you one time. Some of you weren't here with regards to the word deny. is arneomai, A-R-N-E-O-M-A-I. It's a verb, future middle indicative. It has a range of four meanings. First of all, it means to refuse consent to something. Second, to state something that is not true or to deny it. Three, to disclaim association with a person or an event, to deny, repudiate, disown. And number four, to refuse to pay attention to, disregard, renounce. The context determines which meaning of deny would apply in this verse. And it appears that any of these meanings could apply both in verse 12 and 13. See, 
whatever it is about denying, because we can deny him in all these in all these fashions. And the the uh, Paul isn't specific of which meaning he has here, but it really doesn't matter because I went through each one of these meanings. Okay, does that apply? Well, yeah, that would apply. Would this one apply? All four meanings apply. So it doesn't matter which way that you deny him. It doesn't matter because he cannot deny himself because of who and what he is. Okay, we went through. Uh, here's the. If you want to know the gist of this verse, it's up here in red. Eternal salvation depends not on our faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. That's why we can be so dogmatic. Someone says, well, are you saved? I hope I never hear anybody from this church say, I hope so. Shame on you if you do. You don't get it if you say that. If, if, you, if I hear somebody around this church, when someone asks them, are you saved? And you say, you're damn right I'm saved. Well, you won't get scorn from me. You'll probably get applause. Because <laughs> that will probably get their attention. I've done that before, by the way. And when you do it as a pastor, they really raise those eyebrows. That's my, I, I, I intend for them to. Because they usually come back with some kind of comment or look. Well, aren't you something? Oh, you're very proud of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm very proud of my God. That's why I can say it with confidence, because nothing depends on me. Now, please, just take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but if the Holy Spirit motivates you to say that, then let it rip, I guess. And we have some similar verses here. Um, See, if denying Christ meant that you would lose your salvation or meant that you never had it, then what are we going to do with Peter? He denied Christ three times. And I believe that Peter was a believer. Uh, so we have some other things here. Let's get down to now another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. This verse is more difficult than most of them that you would you would see because the answer doesn't come immediately if you keep reading it will come to you first corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren. What does that? What what can you glean from that already? Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's not talking to fellow Jews and calling them brethren. These were uh, Gentiles. They were Hellenistic. They were Greeks. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand. By the way, that standing is a perfect active indicative. Perfect tense. You stand with the result that things go on and on of you standing for it, by which also you are saved. Present passive indicative. 
so far, so good. He's talking to believers and he's talking about, boy, you're, you, I preached the gospel to you. You received it. You stand in it. You're saved by it. All right. Now we're, we're on track. But look at what it says now. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Oh, wow. This, is, this, this can be so disconcerting when you just read it at first. This if, by the way, is a first-class conditional clause, and it means they were holding fast the word which I preached to you. Do you understand that? When we see the if, we, we always think, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. No, but this is a first-class conditional clause, meaning, yes, they were holding fast the word which he preached to them. Essentially, everything that he was saying in this verse 1 and part of verse 2, they were holding fast to that. So far, so good even then. But as my dad would used to say, then we hit a stump. Unless you believed in vain. Now this interjects something that is rare indeed. Uh, unless you believed in vain. I mean, haven't we seen through the Scriptures that when you believe in Jesus Christ, that's all that is needed and you receive the free gift of eternal life. And it's imputed to you. You go to the top circle. You're in Christ. Nothing can change that. Isn't that what we believe? But all of a sudden he says, oh, 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 unless you believed in vain. And I've been telling you all this time, there's not the quantity of your faith, there's not the quality of your faith, that's the object of your faith that matters, but this is maybe, maybe you could have believed in vain. This is a heart stopper. Where do we go from here? Am I building up the drama for you? I hope so. <laughs> now, this is what's called the debater's conditional clause. And it has to do with the unless part. When he says, unless you believed in vain, he is trotting something out there. He is suggesting something that doesn't go with the verse, it doesn't go with doctrine, it doesn't go with anything that he stands for, but he's saying this in order to prove it wrong, unless you believed in vain. Now, what is it that could possibly cause someone to believe in vain? Well, we're going to answer that soon enough, but the drama builds as we go, maybe. Let's look at the word unless. This is important. Unless it's translated from the Greek words ektos, which is the adverb, and I, which is a conditional conjunction, and may, which is a negative particle. The speaker is actually saying, let us assume the brethren have believed in vain. That's what that means, unless. He's, a, he's saying, let's assume this. Let, let's take this idea and run with it and see what happens. And there would be a lot of people who, who would say, okay, if you could believe in vain. What would a Reformed theologian say? Well, if you didn't have the right kind of faith, you would just be a professor of Christ and not a real true believer of Christ because your faith was defunct. For some reason, it wasn't valid. It, 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 the problem was with your faith. That's what they would say. 
And some, some people would look at that and say, well, then maybe that's plausible. Something sure caused Paul to say, let us assume that they have believed in vain. And this is what some people would come up and say, and they would try to make an argument for that. And, of course, you would be able to smack that away because you, well, at least after this class, you will, you'll be able to explain in context what the Bible says. Well, what is it that would cause them to believe in vain? And then this is just talking about how the, uh, the Greeks, the Hellenistic era, uh, period, these Greeks did not believe in resurrection. They thought that the body was this vile prison, and when you died, you were free of it. So when Paul comes along and he starts teaching the gospel, and he's going to give it to him again here, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, and he offers eternal life to anyone who would trust him and him alone for it. That's the gospel. Now, who is he talking to again? Greeks, but what kind of Greeks? Believing Greeks. See, that's an, important, that's an important factor in here. He calls them brethren. They received the gospel. They were standing in the gospel. They were saved. They were holding fast. All these are showing that he was talking to believers. So what would you do if someone came to you and he was an apostle and he told you how you were saved? It's all by grace. It's all by faith. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. Wouldn't your ears pick up, perk up? The Corinthians were uh, missing the great blessing of their own future resurrection as well as failing to orient to the plan of God, which we call phase three. In other words, they weren't completely buying this idea of Christ's resurrection. Does that mean they weren't believers? What did verse 1 say? Paul is correcting something in the minds of believers. They trusted Christ. They knew that He was the Messiah. They knew that He had paid for their sins and they knew that He died. He paid the penalty for their sins. But because of their, their background, because of their culture, because of the prevalent ideas of the day in, which it, in the area that they lived, they just had a problem with resurrection. So you have Paul addressing that issue. What happened to the rest of my notes? Hold on a minute. That's the end of the notes there, so I am uh, just going to go on. We're not going to have any more notes. We don't have any on the uh, PowerPoint here. So uh, what we're looking at, what I'm teaching you, let's, I'll just go to the Bible here, um, which also you are saved in verse 2, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, Believing in vain is is the only there's there's only one thing that we're going to see 
that could cause a believer to believe in vain. And you probably already figured it out by now. And that is, if Christ was not resurrected. That's the point he's going to make. Look in your Bible. We'll just read on. For it says, <clears throat> verse, verse uh, 4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What's he talking about there? He's already going to the resurrection. And that he appeared to Cephas, even to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. What does that mean, fallen asleep? It means that they don't die, does it? It means that they just uh, their body is temporarily as if it was dead, but they're not dead. Their body is just sleeping because it's going to be woke up. Christ is going to return. They're going to have a resurrection body. Verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and the grace towards me did not prove vain. I labored even... More than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Do you know why that's so important, that last part? Here you have Paul, and he's a great apostle. He wasn't great because he just sat around and had some title. He labored. He labored more than all the other apostles, probably more than all the apostles put together. And yet he said... He labored more, but this last part is the, the important part. It says, not I, but the grace of God with me. You see that? And it's the same with us. The grace of God with me. We work. God expects us to work. But we can't take credit and strut about because the only reason we're able to work is because of the grace that God extends to us to be able to do things that He requires of us. Apart from His grace, we can't do anything. We can do a lot of work. Uh, you, you, an expression is you may have heard before, it's just a tempest in a teapot. You ever heard of that before? And that's what work, outside of being filled with the Holy Spirit, is. It's just a tempest in a teapot. It doesn't mean a thing. And so He labored because of the grace of God that was with Him. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, verse 12 through verse 19 is the meat of this. This is answering uh, the question as to um, why they could have believed in vain. This is where we're going to have it here. back up there where it was.
Why, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. This is, I think this is so great because when you talk about your faith being in vain, that really doesn't count. This is the only thing in the Bible that I know of that would say you believed in vain. And he starts it in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he is not raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And see, that's what they were saying. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and this is a first-class conditional clause, but it's a debater's technique, and it means let us assume, essentially for the sake of argument, there is no resurrection from the dead, then that means that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is in vain. So you have another one there. If Christ has not been raised, let's just assume that He hasn't been raised, then you're going to have essentially uh, six results of that. And you can just number them. I have them numbered in my Bible. Now He's talking about in verse 2, unless you believed in vain. And now watch how many times He says in vain as far as the results, if Christ has not been raised, number one, then our preaching is vain. Vain means useless, empty, good for nothing. That's number one. Number two, your faith is also in vain. He's already established that in verse 2. Number three, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed, against, we, we witnessed against God that He raised Christ from whom He did not raise if in fact the dead be not raised. In other words, they're liars if Christ had not risen. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, those are more debaters' techniques there, and now we have some more results. Your faith is worthless. That would be uh, number four. You are, you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins, by the way, which should be number four. Yeah, that's number four. Still in your sins is, uh, or I mean, you are still in your sins is number four. Number five, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. How does this jive with John 3.16? Whosoever, what? Believeth in Him shall not, what? Perish. Well, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then that's a lie and people will perish. And the last one is in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, how more a damn can you get than that? I mean, here you have uh, Paul putting everything, everything rests on Christ being resurrected from the grave. Now, when you understand that, you can go back to verse 1 and 2, 
understanding what, what that a person... He's, he's saying you can be saved, you can uh, stand firm in the faith, and, uh, be, and you can uh, receive the gospel. You can do all these things. But if Christ wasn't resurrected, it's all in vain. That's what he's saying. And you can't let someone come and take something like this out of context because if you do, uh, they're just going to take it and uh, they're going to make it to where... They're going to make it to where uh, there's some, something that you did. It's a flaw in your, in your faith. You didn't have the faith, the right kind of faith or enough faith. You all understand that? Because I'm fixing to leave it. I'm about to leave it. Are you all going to be able to explain that to someone where they say, well, what does it mean unless you believed in vain? All you have to do is say, just read to verse 12. Just keep reading to verse 12, and Paul is going to tell you why you can believe in vain. And that's the only reason that I know you could, be, you could believe in vain that Paul... Uh, stresses, and that is the fact that Christ, if He did, was not resurrected, essentially He's saying we are to be above all men pitied. That means we are toast. It means that Christ is a liar. And if He's a liar, we cannot trust Him because Christ said that He was going to rise from the grave on more than one occasion. Remember what He said to uh, at Lazarus' grave, what did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Remember that? Well, that's a lie if he, didn't, if he didn't rise from the grave. How could he return to us? How could he take us home back with him? Why would he go up to heaven to be uh, making a place for us if he wasn't going to, uh, if, he couldn't, if he didn't rise from the grave? Well, I'm kind of stealing my own thunder from my Easter message that will be coming up soon. But... Uh, when you start looking at all the resurrection verses in um, in the New Testament, it's astonishing. Just every every other, I, I think one out of every five verses, something like that, has something about the resurrection. In it. So, I don't have I don't have what I uh, what I have prepared on the screen, but I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two. This is our next verse that people would look at and they would question. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, underline that part, lest we, that we drift away from it. And what can you tell? I, I want you all to look critically at these verses and see what you can dig out of these verses for yourself. What else can, can you glean from this first verse of chapter 2? When it says, for, it's the same as saying, therefore. Why, what is it, therefore? 
for this reason, what reason? For what he was saying in chapter 1. What was he saying about chapter 1? He's saying in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is unique. He is superior to angels. He is the God-man. It's talking about the celebrity ship of Jesus Christ. He is sitting at the right hand of God. And there will be a time when His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. We're told in verse 14 of verse of chapter 1, talking about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What does that mean? When are angels ministering to us now? Yes. Is there really such a thing as guardian angels? Yes. Are we superior to angels now? That's a quick, that's a trick question. See, it, it depends on if you're talking about positionally or experientially. Positionally, we are superior to them. Experientially, we are not. What that means is right now, if we saw an angel, we would freak out. We would never see such a beautiful, magnificent creature. I mean, just about every time you see angels in the, in the Bible, uh, Old Testament or New, these people just fall down on their face. It's just tremendous. But that's only temporary. When we get a resurrection body, who is our resurrection body going to be like? Christ. Is Christ superior to angels? That's all what it's talking about in chapter 1. And so, after we receive our resurrection bodies, experientially, we will be greater than angels. Already they're ministering to us because we're royal family. Anyhow, that's what he's been talking about. What else can you glean for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. I want two things from you that you can tell from this. One of them is more obvious than the other. What can we get from this? What does it say can happen? We can drift away, right. But who is the we? It's got to be believers because the writer of Hebrews is including himself. So this is saying that believers can drift away. Well, there are some who say that you have to persevere. Remember? Perseverance of the saints, reformed theology. And yet we have this, believers drifting away. It's, not only is it possible, this is the standard mode of operation for believers usually is to drift away. And then, of course, that begs the question, how far can you drift away before it proves that you are not really saved? How far? How long can you be drifted away before it proves you weren't really saved? You had some kind of uh, chink in your faith. And I'm, these are satirical type questions because there is no answer because the fact of the matter is believers do drift away. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, 
how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, let's let's look at let's see what this is talking about. This, we have the word salvation here. For if the word spoken through angels prove unalterable, you know what that's talking about? That's talking about. See, they didn't have uh, the New Testament canon of Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would use angels in order to instruct and give information and even the gospel to uh, the Jews back in that day. I mean, you had Aaron and Moses, and there were about four million Jews. They needed some help to uh, getting all this administered. And so he's saying that he, angels, see, he just finished talking about angels in verse 14. Now he's talking about angels. And God used them to speak to the people in the Old Testament. And what they said, dictates of the Mosaic Law, were unalterable. In other words, what they said stood fast. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, which means punishment. It appears that transgression means you could transgress something and not really be aware that you were doing it. Or maybe you were aware and you just forgot, you got caught off guard and you transgressed. But then you have disobedience, which is you know what's wrong. You're going to do it anyway. So there were people who were transgressing. What kind of transgressing? Every kind of transgressing and disobedience. And what happens when they when they were disobedient and they transgressed? What did they receive? A just punishment, right? Okay. Verse 3 now. How shall we... He's talking about believers now. He's making a comparison. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay. What is it that, they, that they're going to escape? Is he talking about the lake of fire? No. He's not talking about the lake of fire. What is it? He says... How shall we escape? In other words, if we... He's talking about actually the first generation of the Exodus. Remember those that group? God talked to them directly. He talked to them on a mountain. These people, if you go into the Old Testament, it's just... In some ways, I think it's kind of comical but because it was kind of like the Keystone Cops. That's kind of like what the, the first generation Israelites were like. Because they told Moses... We're tired of hearing it from you. We want to hear it right from God. He said, okay, go to Mount Horeb, gather yourself around, and God is going to speak to you. God started speaking to them, and they freaked out. And they said, Moses, please don't have God speak to us anymore. Let him speak to us through you or other prophets because we can't take it. Can you imagine uh what that would be like to hear God speak and there was fire on the mountain and he said nobody is to cross, is to come across this border here up this mountain if you do they're going to die even animals nothing gets gets up here and so they thought they were big time well why can't God just speak to us himself and God says okay I don't know what it's like you know <laughs> I can't even start 
to sound like what God must have sounded like because they were frightened out of their gourd. They, they just trembling in their boots so much. It even scared Moses. And so they said, from now on, let's, let's speak this way. So these are the people we're talking about. And it says that uh, they received a just recompense. You know what the recompense was? I don't have time to go to it, but if I did, just, just mark this somewhere so you'll know. If you want to find out what the recompense they received for being transgressing and uh, being disobedient, go to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. That's where you have the five cycles of discipline is what it's called. And each time he calls it, uh, I'll tell you where the, the first cycle is in, is in uh, Leviticus 26, verse 16. The second cycle is in Leviticus 26, 18. The third cycle is in verse 21. The fourth cycle is in verse 23. And the fifth cycle is in verse 27. And you know what happens in each one of these things? He ratchets up the discipline, the heat, so to speak. It gets seven times worse every time. I mean, by the time you're around the third cycle, and it's already been ratcheted up seven times each time, by the time the fourth cycle comes around, if you don't get it, if you're not humble, well, you're just going to be taken out. And he's going to ratchet it up a seven times. Anyway, that's what it's talking about. It was so bad. Now, this was written... This was written in around 67, 68 A.D. Now, what does that tell you? What is the writer of Hebrew trying to get these people to understand? What happened in 70 A.D.? The fifth cycle of discipline occurred. God's grace ran out. His wrath came down. And all these people that this, that this, that this uh, writer of Hebrews is writing to, evidently they did not heed the warning and they were taken out as a nation. It was, so, it was so utterly horrible that you had mothers, two women, neighbors, fighting each other over whose child they were going to eat because of the famine and because of the suffering. I could go on and on. It was just absolutely horrible. So you get a taste of what he's saying. And who is he talking to here? Believers. That's what they don't get. Look back up here. Verse 1 again. Now, this, reading it now, this will be more understandable and will penetrate deeper. He says, Play, pay much closer attention to what we have heard what was taught. They were taught doctrine. They had prophets telling them, you better get it right or you're going to get wiped out. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard lest we drift away from it. And when you drift away, and that's one of the things I had on my notes that I'll ask you next time. You can be thinking about it in the meantime. How does one drift away? How does one drift away from what they have heard, what they've been taught? 
Think about that because I'm going to ask it next time. They drifted away. And then what he's saying essentially in verse 2, if the angels who gave them the instructions, and they, they of course, knew every transgression and disobedience and receipt. These were people who received a just punishment. That's what recompense means. And now he's saying, how do you think we're going to escape such a thing if we neglect so great a salvation? And here's another thing I want to ask you. How do you neglect a salvation? And what kind of salvation is this talking about? This is the thing that you need to be able to rightly divide. And you can do it. You don't have to know the Greek for this. If you've been listening and understanding and connecting the dots on what I've been teaching, you'll understand what this is saying, but it takes thought. You can't just read it and say, well, I don't understand. I'll wait for somebody to explain it. No, you figure it out yourself. You, you, can, you can do it. How shall we escape? Escape what? Is he talking about divine, uh, divine discipline? Or is he talking about escape the fires of hell? Hell doesn't have a thing to do with this, does it? He's talking to believers. See where it says, after it was at, at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by us through those who heard that speaking of the Lord was what I was explaining a while ago. He spoke it to them directly. So after it was, at the first, spoken through the Lord, what this salvation, this, 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 his, his plan, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and Gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. We won't get into that. I want you to just, between now and next time, I want you to reread this verses 1 through 3. And I want it to seek in because this is what people are not getting, folks. This is why believers think that they can just say, well, you know, who, who goes to Bible class during the week? Some, uh, some of them go one day on Wednesday. And I, how much doctrine do you think they have? Not, not, not many churches that do that. And what they're not getting is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If God did not spare these people who he tried to ignore Him, disregard Him, and they didn't get it. They were so full of their lives, so full of themselves. If He didn't spare them, and I go to Leviticus 26, and you'll see what happened when He didn't spare them. He's, and the writer of Hebrews saying, what's going to happen to us? And people don't get it. And that's, that's, that's when the ramifications of this go so far You see nothing in verse... Show me anything in verse 2 that has... Any, in our, verse 1 and verse 2, do you see anything in there that would be positional or, or what we would call salvific? Do you see anything there? It's all experiential, isn't it? And when people come here and try to say, well, 
if you don't, if you're not obedient and if you transgress, then you're not going to escape because you neglected your salvation. And, they, and, and what, what does it mean? It means that they're going to hell. That's what people say. Do you see how far-fetched that is? This is God's immutable Word. It's given for our edification. And this is a warning. It's a warning to every believer. And I doubt that there's very few believers that have even considered it or even understood it. Aren't you glad you're here tonight? (laughs) Aren't you glad that you get it, that you understand it? I hope you do. I'm going to give you more information on this next time because I don't have my notes. I was doing this off the cuff of what I was studying today. You know that I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you this. How can you neglect so great a salvation? How do you neglect a salvation? You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ, God imputed eternal life to you, but then later on the Scriptures say, take hold of that eternal life. Whether you take hold of it or not is going to be determined by your attitude towards God and His Word. Whether you're going to be transgressing this disobeying and thinking, oh, well, it's okay, I didn't die. Yet, I think you're getting the picture. Okay, uh, I'm essentially out of time. And um, this Sunday is, remember, is Communion Sunday. If you want to bring a dish, let's see Andrew. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. You've given us the fellowship in your Word. and We recognize how imperative that we understand how serious you are about us growing in grace, about how we ignore you, disobey you, transgress against your mandates at our own peril. This is a motivating force for us, for us to understand that there is no coasting. We either for you or we're against you. We either growing or we are retrogressing. We either have an eternal sense of destiny or else we are occupied with the things of this life, the details of life. It's an either or. So we pray that you will help us to see that. Not only that we will apply this in our own lives, but it will be a light to others to see what you can do through a good and faithful servant. And we pray this all in Christ's name.